Hello, and welcome back to The Violet Vulture, or simply welcome if you're new here. My name is Emmy, and I'll be your host. I identify as a storyteller, Datsula, witch, and an all-around too-much person. And what do we do here on the pod? Well, we love and honor the spooky, the esoteric, spirituality, art, curiosity, horror, shadow work, strong opinions, and questions. A lot of this podcast does come from my own reflections, thoughts, perspectives, but a lot of it does come from you all. So do drop a voice memo or a comment on Spotify, DM me, email me, your fascination, morbid curiosity, special interest, and your topic just might make it onto the pod. I'm just so happy to be back to be putting out this episode that I've been sitting on for a while, but between COVID recovery, wanting to really commit to a proper launch of the website, you know, I I realized I didn't want to make the same choices as I used to when it comes to my platform, where I just put something out to put it out, and then I immediately hate it. So taking the little bit of extra time to just focus on getting that up and running to the point where I think only a few more pages need to be updated. That's amazing. It feels amazing. So you can go on to the show notes. And now when you go to click on the link to soyemmy.com, everything will be up and running. So it feels so good. It's a really great feeling of not really closure, but I at least feel like I can move on to other things. So feels good to be able to ease into the other projects again. So yeah, happy Pride Month. I, I myself am a bi gender fluid human. So I, I've always loved Pride. You know, there's the complicating factor of as more time goes by, it feels like there's Pride has never really been safe. <laughs> But it definitely hits different when violence are at an all-time high. I, I know like our elder queers definitely have felt this in the past. So I think there's a lot of room for solidarity within the community if we are open to that. So I hope that you have a happy, safe pride, whether you're out or are only selectively out or don't really know what you're what you've got going on. There's no rush, you know. Take your time with it. And and with that, I I'm so happy to be sharing with you this episode with Mickey Alice Quapis. Uh, she and I met. It's gonna be like close to ten years. It's not been ten years, but pretty close. Uh, we dug into what kicked off her preservation journey, how it's evolved over the years. We took some time as well to explore how her work has impacted, how she relates to grief and loss, and ultimately how that intersects with how her clients come to her. And while taxidermy has become more mainstream overall, I was also really curious about what folks may still be getting wrong about it. There's still plenty of misinformation, misconceptions out there. So we also spend plenty of time digging into that too. But all in all, what I value about Mickey 
in this conversation and in life, aside from her being such a brilliant, thoughtful, generous creator, is always putting her perspective and herself out there. You know, both at the time of recording and even now, I'm really holding on to these like nuggets of wisdom that she shared. And I hope that I hope that the juice that it gave me that y'all enjoy that juice too. So basically she's a delight, but you can see for yourself. Let's get on to today's episode. Hello everyone. Welcome back to the Violet Vulture. Today I have on with me a dear friend of mine that sadly I haven't seen since the pandemic, but I'm so glad that we can be in community together today. I'd like to introduce my dear friend, Mickey Alice Quapis. Welcome on, Mickey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. I haven't done a podcast in so long and it feels so surreal. So thanks. No, absolutely. And a little bit of a introduction from what I remember, but I know that you've expanded kind of your artistry and everything that you're offering. But in case folks are local to Chicago or just kind of like in the scene in general, my initial introduction to Mickey was that article that called you the Snow White of Death, I believe it was. Yes, the Chicago Magazine interview. Yeah, they um, they called me Snow White of the Dead, and then they rented all of these taxidermy animals from Woolly Mammoth up in Andersonville. And then, yes, this photographer, Jacob Watts, took photos of all of these rented animals from Woolly Mammoth up in Andersonville, and then he took my portrait, and then they superimposed them into this crazy like forest scene. It was really fun. Yeah, I'll I'll make sure to to link that in the show notes because I absolutely love that photo. When I was pulling up your info, it came up in the search again, and I'm like, oh yeah, that is where I initially like got introduced to you that way. And yeah, I just thought that was so funny. Like these these things are gonna linger, but I think it's such a charming one to kind of have tied to you. So you know, I. I know that you have evolved over time in terms of how you yourself identify, because at the very least for me, I I related to you more as like, oh, this person is a taxidermist, but they have like a very artistic approach to it that I find really refreshing, even down to like how you teach it. So in your own words, how would you describe who, what you are? I think the easiest thing at this point in my career is just to call me like a specimen artist. But honestly, I'm just an artist. I do and make so many things. And sometimes I feel like I'm not taxidermist enough to be considered a taxidermist. I am not scientific enough to fit in with the sciencey people. I'm not artistic enough to fit in with the artistic people. I don't know. So I just make whatever makes me feel happy and I started teaching taxidermy classes in 2012, so it's been quite a journey over the last 10 and a half years, something like that. And I also started making mourning jewelry in 2012. So the two have been very intertwined throughout basically my entire adult life. And I also learned how to make stained glass two years ago, and I have been making insect art since I was 14. And uh, I think all of these things kind of tie together I learned how to do taxidermy by chance when a friend needed help working on a class biology project, and 
I made my first pieces of mourning jewelry when my aunt passed away. I collected flowers from her funeral service, dried them, and then made them into little lockets. And the lockets have gone through so many iterations over the years, and it's really interesting. I don't know where the one that I made for myself went, but when my great-grandma passed away two years ago, I then inherited her locket that I made for her. So it all kind of comes full circle. She was a huge champion of my work. She died on my 30th birthday, and I ended up in Ripley's Believed or Not with pictures of morning jewelry that I made in memory of her, but Ripley's was a huge interest that we had both shared from the time that I was a small child, so it just felt, and the gift that she gave me for my 30th birthday, which I received a couple of days before my actual birthday, was a copy of the Ripley's Believe It or Not book that I grew up reading with her. So, I don't know. I think everything is sort of interconnected, but then we also live in a world that's super random, and we see patterns when our brains are looking for them. So who really knows? Oh, that, that's also beautiful. I, I really appreciate a handful of things I do want to touch on. One being that... You're, you're not a second person I've had on the last few months that ha- has said that while you could probably rattle off a bunch of labels or like titles that could perhaps help people immediately get it, this like greater, you know, overarching, like I'm a creative, I'm an artist at, at its core. That's what I am. The medium or the way that I showcase my work, maybe what evolves over time, but that will always be like the main thing. So I really love that we're kind of going full circle. I feel like we were in a in an era of specialists and now we're kind of going back to like, I love making things and it tends to be about this, but why limit myself? So I, I really appreciate that. And I do want to hold space too that a lot of your work is about honoring the dead or about grief and mourning and, you know, speaking from the eye because I don't want to speak for you, but it, it always hits a little bit different when you work with death and then you experience a loss and it kind of, it, there's a bit of a shakeup that I feel like happens where it both affirms the work that I do, but then it forces like a new evolution of how I approach what I do. But I, I love that tie-in of like Ripley's Believe It or Not. I, I love synchronicities like that. Yeah, so touching on feeling like an artist or not feeling enough like an artist. I'm not, I make, like right now I'm working on a pendant made with a dried beetle grub. And I got the beetle grub from a friend, sent it out to another friend who specializes in mold making and had her make a mold of it. Then she sent it back to me. Then I'm sculpting it to make sure that all of the areas of the beetle that dried up get filled in with resin Then I send it out to someone else who specializes in mold making for jewelry. And then that's going to get cast in metal. And then I'm going to set little diamonds in where the spiracles go. And it's this whole big thing, but I'm not, not sciencey enough to be a bug scientist. And I'm not fine jeweler enough to like sell that at Tiffany's, you know, no one's going to want a grub encrusted with black diamonds But at the same time, it's something that I'm making for me. And I think that that's the most important thing that I've learned as an artist is to only be making things that actually matter to me. Because if I'm making things in the hopes that they appeal to someone else, I'm completely missing the mark. It doesn't mean anything to me. And it 
probably won't mean anything to some random viewer also. And yeah, as far as synchronicities go, like I was saying, we're, we're always searching for some kind of deeper meaning in our experiences. I think that a huge part of all of my habits as a creative now in my adult life were significantly impacted by the loss of my uncle when I was 12. Huge trigger warning for suicide. He jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge on Christmas Day when I was 12. And it kind of struck me last night, like, that's so fucked up that I I lived through that as a little kid and didn't really have the resources to deal with it because that's such a rare way for someone to lose a person. Typically, if you lose someone to suicide, you still are coming across their remains. You're able to have some kind of goodbye, even if it's not the in-person, we're both alive, goodbye that you would want if someone were, say, dying of cancer in the hospital. But you at least are able to have some kind of closure. There's a funeral or you get to sprinkle the person's ashes. When John died for like 10 years, I hoped that he would pop back up and say, just kidding, guys, I faked it. I'm here. I think that all of my work today is really informed by that feeling of wanting to have something to hold on to. I think that's like the root of all of it. When it comes to taxidermy, you are holding on to literally the shell of the animal. Everything that was alive inside of it has been stripped away. It's been chemically treated. At a certain point, it's like Build-A-Bear Workshop. You're just putting all the parts back together. And the piece of art that you end up with is a replica of the animal that was once alive, but it isn't the animal anymore. It becomes, if it was a pet, an animal that you knew personally, it becomes a a relic to the animal that you once knew. And if it's just some random animal, like, oh, it's a bird that crashed into a window that doesn't violate the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and is totally allowed, you're allowed to have it, um, it can become a symbol of something else. And then as far as mourning jewelry goes, again, you maybe have something physical like hair or ash or a tooth to hold on to from that person that you loved, or you have something else that becomes a physical representation of that person, like a replica of their eye. Or I I made a locket for someone last year that had an inside joke with their best friend about chili flakes from a pizzeria, and I made a necklace that had chili flakes in it, that kind of thing. I think that after you lose someone, you have to take the steps that you need to take in order to remember that person or animal or experience in the way that they impacted you and the way that your interactions were versus what you think might be normal in a society or even how you think that person or animal would want to be remembered. My great-grandma was a huge champion of my work, but I mean, she knew that I was also a total weirdo and that's totally fine. I don't think that my great grandma would wear a locket full of dirt around her neck, but I wear a locket full of dirt around my neck to remember times that I shared with her. And I also, I think that 
in when you lose someone, the best way to honor them is to seek your own happiness rather than following in what you think were their footsteps. Um, obviously, I keep coming back to my great-grandma because I was named after her. I grew up with her. She took care of me after school every day. Um, we had so many shared experiences. And for some people, they might say, oh, if you want to follow in your great-grandma's footsteps, you should take up downhill skiing and tennis and play in the Senior Olympics, which is what she did. But I think that the greatest honor that I can give to her is to follow my own path because the path that she was following was not necessarily what her great-grandparents would have wanted her to be doing. And I think to just keep evolving and become a, a little bit more emotionally mature and aware and to really seek happiness. Oh, no, I, I loved all of that so, so much. And I know that you say that, like, who would want a jewel-encrusted beetle? But I, I fully do. <laughs> I actively seek that. I think it was the first time I was in New York. I went to the Evolution store and I got these like beetle wing earrings. And I think that's where my love of like wearing bugs came in. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I love that so much. But I and again, to to validate or perhaps like a different spin is something artistic actually change more hands than you may have realized that so-and-so did one thing, this thing, and then this culmination is like a wonderful piece of morning art or a way of honoring something. Because I think what we often overlook, but I feel like is kind of inherent in your work is also this communal aspect that we're honoring an animal and what it once was in the grand scheme of things. Or if it's morning art, this person meant something within your family system or even to you. So it's about weaving them in in a different way to kind of give their, give them a, a different, like how you relate to them will be different once they've passed. So I don't know. I, I feel like that touches on, I, I think self-care is still important, but community care is a really big piece of what I'm harping on with my death doula work right now. And I, I love hearing about how much, this is your work is so tied to people who have loved and supported you, even though they may have thought you were a weirdo. It doesn't mean that they, they didn't think that you were like unworthy of love and support. So I, I think that's all also lovely. So, you know, I really thank you for that. And I, I guess I'm, I'm also curious kind of going back to what you touched on before that, uh, taxidermy came on a little bit later, just kind of uh, helping a friend who needed some support with that and evolved into what you do now. So exactly how far back does preservation go for you? I am looking at my wall right now. I have a bear that my grandpa Ed hunted in 1972-ish. He shot the bear field dressed it, brought it home, and he had just the head and shoulders mounted as a taxidermy piece, and then he fed his family that bear for the entire winter. My dad says that he can still taste like what that meat tasted like, and he and his siblings named the bear Fuzzy Wuzzy. So Fuzzy Wuzzy was a regular fixture in my grandparents' house growing up. Um, it was in the basement, on the wall, behind the couch. 
and I would climb up, take out its tongue, and then like play with it alongside my Barbies as if it were anthropomorphized. Anthropomorphized. Whatever. You know the word. (laughs) Too many syllables. Anthropomorphized. So my taxidermy was just a part of my childhood growing up. And I never stopped to think, how was this made? This was a once living bear. But when I was given that opportunity to help in my friend's bio homework, she said, hey, you're not grossed out by anything. Come over after work. I need to skin a squirrel. I need some moral support. And I thought, sure, let's do that. I loved the process so much. It's like peeling a disgusting orange. And Haley hated it so much, and she never touched a dead animal again, but I became really fascinated with the process. So I did a tiny bit of research, but I really was just going based off of the textbook that we were using, how to create study skins. And study skins are used in museum settings to fill the emptied, treated skin of an animal with just straight cotton. You sew it up. It doesn't have eyes. It doesn't have any kind of armature making it look like an animal. So I figured, why don't I start using supplies that I have around my house and stuff that I can get just at Joanne Fabrics, Michaels, and Target? What can I do here? And I came up with a really rudimentary method for very basic taxidermy. And I was just making things for myself. I would take the bones and turn them into jewelry. I sold them at a couple of street fairs, and I started getting asked if I would teach people how to do taxidermy. So that's where my taxidermy aspect of my business was born, fall of 2012. At the same time, my aunt passed away, and that's when I started making morning jewelry. So at that point in my life, It was just kind of a crossroads where everything kind of came together. I was supposed to be studying for the LSAT. I didn't. I was making taxidermy instead. And I then failed the LSAT. You can't really fail, but I got a real shitty score. And I thought, what am I going to do? I don't want to wait until the next testing session. Do I even care about this anymore? What am I going to do with my life? And then I got invited to teach a taxidermy workshop at a friend's store in Cleveland. And I figured, well, if I'm traveling to teach, then maybe I can travel to some other locations as well. And I did that for 10 years. And I've gotten to teach at the Houston Museum of Natural Science. I have an ongoing relationship with the Harvard Museum of Natural History. I'm going back to teach there again in May, which is so crazy. This is my eighth year teaching at freaking Harvard. And the way that I got that job is I had been in Boston teaching a class at a different location, and I mentioned that I was interested in going to the museum. A friend took me to the museum, and when I came home, I said to my partner at the time, I really want to teach a taxidermy class at the Harvard Museum of Natural History. And he said, why don't you just call them? I was like, you can't just call Harvard and ask them for a job. But I eventually grew the balls to call the museum well after hours. I waited until I knew the museum was closed and we're an hour behind in Chicago. And I called. It would have been like eight o'clock at night. Someone answered. And I froze. 
I was like, oh, oh, um, hi, I teach taxidermy classes. I want to teach a class at your museum. She's like, wow, this sounds really cool. Let me get you in touch with Jennifer in the adult education department. Jennifer called me probably two days later or emailed me, and the rest is history. Um, And so that's the story of how the worst thing that anyone can ever tell you is no. You just have to ask for it. So I called, I asked for it, and now I have just the most incredible friends from this museum. It's unlike any museum I've ever worked in before. Everyone is so nice and willing to jump in and not judgmental. And if you mishear someone talking and you think they said the word quadruplets and you go off on a tangent about armadillos and how all armadillos are quadruplets, they won't stop you until you're done to be like, oh, actually, we were talking about quadrupeds, you know, four-legged animals. They're, they're all just such supportive and nice people who want to hear your weird rants and ramblings about nine-banded armadillos being quadruplets. So, um, yeah, it's just about finding your community and really being authentically yourself and not trying to impress anyone. Just going with the flow, asking for what you want, and showing up authentically, which sounds like it belongs on like a, a women's empowerment podcast. Like, show up authentically, but really just... To, to be yourself and like, it kind of ties back in with not making art that you think other people will like, just making art for yourself because being yourself and being really raw about your experiences and your emotions is what is going to resonate with people. I know that you've been at Harvard for some time, but I had no idea that's how that's how that came about. <laughs> I, I, I love that so, so much. And I feel like it's so beautiful, but but rare to find that kind of connection in these academic spaces. But once you find it, you don't want to let go because everybody's so excited and so eager to share knowledge. I think that's so beautiful. And uh, I, I, I'm really glad that that worked out for you. And one, that you that you gave yourself that shot because like, look at all the beautiful things that came of it. So that's such a, a great lesson that I I will also take home with me if if there's anything that I want to take a lot away from this conversation. But <laughs> one is like that feeling of fear and like don't get in your own way kind of thing. Oh, that, that that's really that's so so good. Um, you know, along those lines, I I can only imagine the kinds of things that you have heard from people outside of these spaces where people are very understanding or also enjoy taxidermy or preservation or talking openly about death or like other quirky, lovely science things. Not that you have to like rattle off a whole list, but I am curious about like, what are some of the things that you've heard that are just wrong (laughs) about taxidermy and preservation that you've been met with aside from perhaps like you're not who I'd expect to be a preservation artist. So I'm not often, okay, we'll take my horse fetus as a great example. This is kind of how it goes anytime that I share some of my work online, especially on an app like TikTok where it's just being fed out to random people and seeing where it picks up. So I posted this video and I said, this is my horse fetus, a little bit about him. And then I made a joke because it's in an Aguas Frescas jar. 
like just a huge glass jar because it's five and a half gallons. It's literally the largest jar that you can purchase in the year 2023. Trust me, I've tried. I would have to commission someone for a very, very, very expensive hand-blown glass jar or build a custom fish tank. But instead, I shoved this giant horse fetus into this jar. And someone said, is that horchata? And I said, no, it's horse chata. So I tied it all in with this lovely little joke. But first, you get the wave of people that are saying, oh, my God, that's so cool, and genuinely asking curious questions. And then you get the wave of people that are saying, oh, my God, that's disgusting. And I think it's probably a 50-50 split. I think if people know who I am, they know what they're getting when they're coming into my space or going on my social media, seeing the work that I produce or the types of specimens that I've collected over the last decade and a half or so. When I have an open studio, because I just moved into this studio loft probably, yeah, six months ago, and we do open house. Every couple of months, you get randos from the community coming in, and half the people are just absolutely enamored, and the other half just sound like they're mostly confused, but I, I can tell a few of them think that I'm a serial killer or something, and that's fine. I will say that in pop culture, Taxidermists haven't really gotten the best reputation. Like, we've got Norman Bates on our side. And then as far as very well-known people who were into taxidermy, we've got Jeffrey Dahmer and Teddy Roosevelt. Those are, like, our pop culture taxidermists. And so most people aren't thinking, oh, yeah, let's talk about Teddy Roosevelt. They're like, oh, did you see the new Dahmer show on Netflix? He really reminds me of you. I'm like, great. Thank you so much for that comparison. I would love to teach you more about science and preservation and death positivity, but let's go off shock value. So I think that's the biggest thing is just getting people over that initial hump of weirdness where their quickest conclusion that they draw is, oh my God, you're a serial killer. But really, when I look up at the wall, I see a piece of taxidermy that my grandpa Jerry bought for me off of Craigslist. I see four other mounts that I went on little weird road trips to the suburb with my boyfriend and we bought these Craigslist taxidermy pieces. I see my grandpa's bear, a weird fish that my mom bought me for Christmas one year. I have my great grandpa's deer antlers and a little knife and a perfect hand of euchre with the name Wild Bill. So all of these pieces have kind of a tie-in to history. And there are multiple facets of the taxidermy industry where you've got commercially made taxidermy, someone's trophy from a hunt that they went on. That's the typical deer gun rack sort of thing you would see on the wall at a bar or a hunting lodge or your uncle's cabin. But then you've also got the side of taxidermy that is for education and research, which are mostly in museums, you've got dioramas on display, you've gotten, you have preserved specimens in drawers upon drawers upon drawers in every museum basement. And the basic techniques used to make all of those styles of taxidermy are used throughout the industry by everyone. It just depends on how you want to present the art that you're making. Because at the end of the day, it is 
art. You're making a sculpture of an animal using the animal as reference and using the skin of the animal as one of your materials. But you are essentially rebuilding an animal to go on display as an art piece, whether it is consumed as art or not depends on the setting that you put it into, but it is art all the time. So to try to break down people's preconceived notions, I'll show them through my whole collection. This is when this is from. This is how this was put together. These are how the techniques have changed from the 1870s until now. And they tend to, if they walk into my studio with an open mind, they tend to leave with a huge amount of information that they can process and use the next time that they come into contact with a piece of taxidermy. It might change the way that they perceive it. I I am so, so sorry that that comes up that often, that like you remind me of Jeffrey Dahmer, who's like, <laughs> I... I imagine there's a certain degree of being a boundaried human doing this kind of work where at a certain point you do expect it, but I it doesn't make it any less cringe to receive. And I I appreciate you naming Teddy Roosevelt because I didn't realize he also fell in the ranks of someone who was also into preservation. And I do wish we spent more time talking about that, frankly, <laughs> because um, yeah, ridiculous. So Teddy Roosevelt, as we most people who have studied him at all would know that he was really, really into the great outdoors. And he was trained in taxidermy by a taxidermist named John Graham Bell. John Graham Bell worked with John James Audubon, the famous naturalist. And the reason, real quick, the reason I'm looking over that way and not at you, I'm literally looking at a case full of John Graham Bell's taxidermy. So, and I'm trying to remember like all my little spiels. John Graham Bell went on expeditions with John James Audubon where they would collect hundreds of birds. And by collect, I mean, they would shoot them and kill them, skin them, stuff them. And then that would be used as reference for the Birds of America print series. So the same taxidermist that worked with John James Audubon to create, to bring this print series to life was also the taxidermist who helped spark Teddy Roosevelt's interest in preservation. So I think that's pretty cool. I have a little piece of American history in my collection. There were only four of these cases of birds ever made. His great-grandson, Frank, is the person that I bought my case from. There's one in a museum, one in a gas station in rural Pennsylvania, and then the fourth one, the family is unsure where it ended up. So maybe it will find its way to me someday. Like, I can at least find out where it is because I do like knowing where that stuff is at. But, yeah, all these, everyone's kind of interconnected, I guess. Oh, that's so, that's so fascinating. And, you know, I do appreciate the naming that we, we've come, we've come far with moving forward with taxonomy and that, like you said, oh, this bird flew into my window. I'm going to preserve it now. It's not that I went and was hunting for it. Um, That, yeah, that was kind of the way I, I heard of, um, not necessarily in preparation for our call, but 
because I realized I didn't watch it the whole way through. I did make it through that documentary that's now on Amazon Prime, uh, Stuffed, where there was that being touched on a great deal. I, I love seeing the different facets of like really loving the naturalism side of it. And then the kind of like artistic side of like, I like to, I like to taxidermy these rodents and then put them in dresses. And I'm like, I love all of the above. <laughs> I love that for all of you. Yeah, I actually haven't seen stuff yet. I don't know what is holding me back from it, but I think I'm sure that a lot of people can resonate with like not wanting to influence yourself too much in a form of art that you practice. Like, for instance, I make stained glass. I purposely hit not interested on stuff sometimes when it's starting to come up too often in my feed because I don't want to see a piece remember it in the back of my brain and end up accidentally making something that was someone else's years later or something. So I try to, um, I guess, stay away from the forms of art that I practice as far as other people's work in those mediums. But at the same time, I know and love several of the women that are in that documentary And I recommend it to people all the time without having actually seen it because I I just know Alice so well, Alice Markham. She's an incredible taxidermist and one of the people I look up to the most in life because she takes absolutely no bullshit from anyone ever for any reason, ever. Um, So I know that if people are interested in taxidermy, maybe they come to my studio, they see some stuff. I'll recommend that documentary to them because I know that what they're going to learn from what Alice has to say is going to like amplify taxidermists and especially women in taxidermy at such an incredible rate. Um, But yeah, I haven't seen it yet because I don't want it to impact the way that I feel about myself and my own approach to my work. I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe I'm just being silly and I should sit down and watch it tonight. But um yeah, I know it's an incre- an incredible documentary, and I love everyone that's in it. Oh, you're you're not alone at all. That actually came up in discussion with a with somebody that I have. They'll be on the. I'm going to release the episode tomorrow. Actually, wow, my brain did not process that. Um, but we, he and I, were recapping on a few things, and I went to pull up a few notes I had made about a film. And he said, oh, no, I can't. I need to process my own way. And then I'll go and listen to your episode. But I have to keep that boundary. Otherwise, it will influence me whether I like it or not. So I think it's surprisingly common. I I have found that I have to, I've unfollowed a few podcasts that I felt are too similar to what I'm doing because I don't want to become derivative and like even down to like my horror reviews, because I'm doing it so differently, I'm less worried about that now. It's like, I can listen to your two hour spiel because my episodes are like 12 minutes. <laughs> like there, there's not enough for me to absorb, but no, I absolutely hear you. And because you already have that rapport set up, I think it's still safe to share. Like, you, you know, they're still going to get value out of the documentary. So with that, uh, I'd like us to circle back to what we were touching on more so in the beginning, this intersection of your work and grief. I know that there are some of these events that 
have impacted you both in terms of that, but also in terms of how people have come to you with their own grief experiences. Uh, For instance, I think this was maybe five or so years ago when we first met, when you and I were talking and you made it clear you had, you had this boundary about, I'm not, I will not taxidermy your dead pets, but I, I'm really curious about, is that still a very firm boundary? How have you, how is that transmuted for you? The reason why I won't taxidermy someone's pet is because A, it's an animal that you knew and loved and looked at and played with and interacted with and took care of for its entire life. So for me, I just don't think that my work would ever live up to someone's expectations I've thought a lot about expectations versus what you actually get in regards to all aspects of life. But with taxidermy specifically, the reason why not only can I just not replicate every quality of your animal because it's dead, you're getting an animal from a client that it died. So it's either injured, sick, old, all of the above. And then I also have no way of knowing how soon after the animal died did you get it in the freezer, in which manner was the specimen stored. And because of both of those factors, not being able to live up to expectations, having an animal that is probably in less than desirable condition, it's just not how I would like to spend my time because I don't think that what I will end up making is ever going to be good enough for my own expectations of myself as a maker. But also, I just, I never want to be giving someone something that is going to cause them more grief or pain. I, I know that there are a lot of ta- talented taxidermists that work in both traditional methods of fully removing the skin, replacing the body with something artificial, sewing it back up. We do a whole lot of restorative work. It turns out great. They're a really great freeze-dry artist. It's something that they specialize in, and it's a type of work that really resonates with them. It's just not for me. At this point in my taxidermy career, I'm using mostly donated specimens. Um, My freezer is full of squirrels that were too freezer-burned for someone to eat in 2016, so they're certainly too freezer-burned to be used now. And pheasant chicks from my friend who's a pheasant farmer who would literally just toss a chick if it didn't hatch fully or if it died within a couple of days. There's not really any use for that on a farm like his. So I'm allowed to have those just for the cost of shipping. Those types of specimens, I'm okay with now the idea of maybe not being able to finish a project. If I get all done skinning and a huge patch of hair falls out, I can say, okay, thank you for this learning experience. I've done my best. There's no point trying to patch this up. I don't want to spend the rest of the project trying to fix what is broken. It's okay to just Marie Kondo your way out of it and say, thank you. I'm laying you to rest now. But yeah, I think the what plays into my work a lot today working with customers is establishing what the expectations are before I begin work to assess, is this something I'm even going to be able to live up to? 
And I have gained the wisdom at this point in my career to be able to say, I'm so sorry. I don't think I'm going to be able to meet your expectations. And for that reason, I'm going to pass on this opportunity. And that way, that person has the option to seek out someone else that might be able to better serve them. I think that that is a sign of a true professional in any capacity to be able to look at something and say, you know what? I'm actually not going to be able to do a great job on this. I think that you should go somewhere else. And if I'm able to provide recommendations, I do that. But if I'm not able to refer someone, I still feel okay because I would rather them not have the project at all than to have a worse version of what they were expecting. And oftentimes, whether it's taxidermy or let's say memorial jewelry, you can't undo what's been done. Like if someone sends me their kid's first haircut and they want it curled up inside of one of my lockets, which are small and round, and I get the hair and I realize this is this hair is pin straight and it's so slippery and fine. There's no way that I'm going to be able to curl this and get it into a locket. Here are some other options that I have available for you. And if you don't like any of those options, I'm more than happy to send the hair back to you problem solved. And it's, it's always a positive experience rather than giving them something that kind of looks like what they thought they were going to get, but not really. And the hair's been all smushed together and it can't be undone the same way that once a taxidermist begins skinning an animal, you can't really put it all back together if things start to go sideways. So I, I think about that a lot, just managing expectations and being honest with myself and the customer when I don't think that it's going to be a good fit because I want to spend my time making things that I am a hundred percent proud of and knowing that the person who's receiving it is going to be a hundred percent happy with it. No, I can really appreciate that because people do have these expectations in their minds. And if the loss is still fairly fresh, the last thing we want is to one, not be, be people's expectations. We have our own kind of code of like baseline, what we want things to, how we want people to feel when they work with us. So I really, I find that so deeply refreshing and I want to really like underline that that is the baseline of any professional you should work with is that they should tell you no if they cannot meet your need and the like. So, you know, really, really grateful for that. I, I want to open this question to all art, aside from specimen work. Um, is there something that you're working on right now that currently feels like it's your favorite in some way? Or has there been something you've worked on that's like, I, not that you peaked, but you're like, this is like the new standard for me. I'll tell you a little bit about a project that I'm going to be working on all spring and summer, I moved into this building where peregrine falcons have been nesting for like over 20 years. And they come, they're a mated pair. They come back, they build their nest and raise their chicks in the same spot every year. I don't think that they live that long. So I'm guessing that these are either children or grandchildren of the original falcons that lived here. But Falcons are protected, and the building has partnered with the Field Museum to do health checks, banding, etc. on the chicks. So 
if you come into our lobby, you can watch videos of the chicks being banded. And falcons kill so many birds. And if you've ever seen one catch a pigeon midair, the feathers go, they go everywhere. And so I knew of the falcons when I moved in at the end of last summer, but they are starting to be around the building more often. They're kind of hanging out, getting ready to start building their nest, and they're starting to kill birds, mostly pigeons. What I've decided to do is start to collect the feathers of the dead birds that are on the ground. So typically they'll catch them, they rip the legs off, sometimes the heads, sometimes the feathers. I have only done one so far, but I collected four or five feathers from the first one that I found of the season. I brought them upstairs and I made a cyanotype print of the feathers. So you take two solutions, you mix them together in darkness, you paint them onto paper, you let it dry fully, and then you lay an item or an op- any kind of object you want. You want it to be something where if you held it up to light, you'd be able to see some light coming through somewhere in it. So for instance, a piece of cardboard wouldn't work. A sponge, if you can see a little bit coming through, would work. But this is mostly used for, it was originally used in botany, so to create prints of plants and leaves and stuff. And you expose it to sunlight for anywhere from 5 to 30 minutes, depending on the UV index that day, the cloud coverage, the time of day and the intensity of the sun's rays, etc. You expose it, then you bring it inside, wash it out, and all of the parts that were blocked from the sunlight rinse white and the rest turn this beautiful cyan blue. So I made a sun print of these feathers, and I am planning on continuing to do so anytime that I find bird parts out and about in the parking lot. I have been told that at some point I will be given special permission to wear a hard hat and go up accompanied by building staff to help clean the carcasses off of the roof because I guess they leave a bunch of carcasses up there. What I'm most excited about is the fact that The Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918 protects all migratory birds. So the only ones that are not protected in the United States are pigeons because they're invasive, starlings because they're invasive, house sparrows because they're invasive, and then in Illinois, crows are, you can't buy, sell, or trade any crow parts, including like feathers, nests, eggshells, etc., But if someone harvests one with a special license through some agricultural something, you can be gifted a crow. So I could find a crow, use its parts, and that could be something that I bring inside and have in my possession. And I have a UV light in my studio that I can use to expose these prints if the sun's not out that day. However, if they kill any native migratory bird, I could technically in the situation, take my paper out, make my little arrangement, expose it to the sun, and then leave those bird parts exactly where I found them, take my print inside, rinse it out, and I will not have violated federal bird law. (laughs) So I'm excited about that because I want to also reach out to the Field Museum and ask if I can be present during the banding 
And if they're cleaning any eggshells out of the nest box, if I could make a sun print of those and then return them, and it's all happening with the federal permit present. So I'm hoping, and I've talked to the building management a little bit, because we have galleries on several floors here. I'm hoping that by the end of the season, I'll have a large series of these cyanotypes made from various aspects of these birds nesting here that I could then maybe auction off or sell in support of this peregrine banding program because it's taken 20 years, but their populations are really starting to increase. So that's what I'm most excited about right now. That is a project that is completely for myself with my own interests. It's a medium that I don't need to worry about. Like if I post this online, are people all of a sudden going to be hitting me up for custom cyanotypes? And maybe they will. But I really wanted to just have something that's weird and fun and tied in with the local ecology and the sun and bird law, which is one of my favorite aspects of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Excellent. That is so beautiful. And I love it on so many levels. And I, I learn so much when every time I talk to you. But especially, I didn't realize that was how layered bird law is. And I love that that falls within the proximity, that you're able to kind of capture this moment and it's still perfectly safe, but also so deeply meaningful about the greater ecology of Chicago. I think that's so good. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're winding down here. I, I do have one final question I ask before the usual like closing commentary and it could be related to what we've talked about or be totally whatever comes to mind for you. But I love to ask everybody, what is something that people never ask about you, but you wish they did? That's so, such a tough question. I'm like looking around my studio trying to figure out, well, I guess my favorite question to ask other artists is if you could give one piece of advice to an artist just starting out, what would it be? And the reason it's one of my favorite questions to ask is because I've asked it to a few of my favorite artists and one said, don't worship the canvas. And that's a piece of advice that I've kept with me for a very long time because it doesn't need to be a canvas. He was a painter, so he was talking about a literal canvas. But for me, it has become don't worship the bird that you're about to skin or don't worship the piece of glass that you're about to try to cut because sometimes fur slips or feather slip or there's a bubble and it cracks. So it ties back in with me calling Harvard, but my biggest piece of advice is just to ask for what you want because the worst thing that anyone can tell you is no. And then you don't take it as no, like, Oh, I'm going to like go and do it anyway, but go and do it anyway in a different way, figure out how to get what you want while not needing the resource that someone said no to you about. So for instance, if I had called Harvard and they said, no, my whole life would have been exactly the way that it was. Nothing in my life would have changed at all. So yeah, remembering that you just have to ask for what you want 
and the worst thing anyone can tell you is no. And my other advice is to ask people, what's the one piece of advice that you would give? Because you never know what you're going to end up learning. Oh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. And with that, I really enjoyed our approximate hour together. It's always such a treat and I really value your perspective and your professionalism and approach to artistry. I think there's something very refreshing about you as an individual. And in with that, if other folks want to stay connected once they hop off this episode, how can they stay in touch or keep up with your work? You can find me on my website at mickeyalicequapis.com. And you can find me on TikTok and Instagram as Quap Quap Quap, which, yes, is a WAP reference. It's the only username I could think of. I was using my real name, and then my Instagram got hacked, and I lost access for like four months. It was completely gone, and then it came back online, but I can't reset the password. So if you find me and it's a verified account, just know that that was indeed me, but I am now unverified doing my thing elsewhere on the internet. So um, yeah, but my website's the best way to get in touch with me and I'm happy to discuss projects and make referrals and talk about life stuff and whatever. But I, I really appreciate you having me. I know we touched a little bit about like not knowing what to expect or I don't know. I, I go back and forth on like what expectations are from in any experience. And I really did not know what to expect coming in, but I also kind of like going in blind and just seeing where stuff leads. So I think this was a really great conversation and I'm really excited to hear, hear it when it comes out. That's all for today's episode, everyone. While we reach the end of this particular conversation, it's time to turn it over to you. Did something I say lead to some spiderweb thinking and you wish we could go even deeper? Do you have more questions? Please do share what's on your mind in email, voice memo, etc. And do let me know those post-pod questions or ideas or if you'd like to have a particular guest come on the podcast. You know, don't be shy. Let's keep the conversation going. If you liked what you heard, and this is all really hitting home for you, please do leave a five-star rating and a review and pass it along to even one friend you think would benefit from what we talked about today on The Violet Vulture. But that's all for today, friends. Thank you for tuning in The Violet Vulture. Bye for now.